Do you think that classical music is not for you and you don't know where to start? Or maybe you're a fan already and would welcome a fresh approach. You've come to the right place. Perfect pitch is for everyone, beginners or experts, whatever your age. Lend Nick Healy Hutchinson your ears for his weekly dose of classical music that will enrich your life. If you aren't familiar with the music of the British composer Sir Peter Maxwell Davis, who lived between 1934 and 2016, this podcast is unlikely to alter that state of affairs after today. That's because Farewell to Stromness, an interlude from the Yellow Cake Review, is quite unlike any of his other music, much of it angry and dissonant, and almost all of it multi-styled. Max, as he was known to his friends, was a prolific composer and acclaimed conductor. He was a Republican, but changed his views on the monarchy after being made master of the Queen's music for ten years. He was also an environmentalist, and it's in this context that today's piece needs to be taken. Stromness is the second largest town in Orkney, where Maxwell Davis had a home. The Yellow Cake Review is a collection of cabaret-style pieces in protest to plans for a uranium ore mine. Stromness was just a couple of miles away and would have been the most affected by pollution if the plans had gone ahead. The piece was written originally for piano, but its transcription to guitar was an inspiration. And it's that version we're going to listen to now, played by Matthew McAllister. We're told that the underlying pace is supposed to be representative of the villagers walking away from their contaminated homes. And so ultimately it's a brief piece about loss and protest, a metaphor you might think for the global climate over 40 years later, after its first performance in 1980. But it's extraordinary how all that can be conveyed with such simplicity. Thank you. 
We've listened to some of the orchestral music of Richard Strauss on previous podcasts, but today I want to pose this question. Did any composer, I wonder, understand, really understand, the true scope, range and possibilities of the soprano voice as well as Strauss? That's quite a bold assertion when you consider the huge competition, but my guess is that it would find a high level of support among sopranos anyway, of which his wife Pauline was one. She was about as fine a personification of the prima donna as you could expect to meet, and their marriage was volatile. But their mutual love of music probably accounts for Strauss's exquisite compositions for the human voice. We're going to listen to a song now which lasts less than two minutes, but its three brief verses are all very slightly different, and a couple of hearings will reveal its subtle musical development. Strauss wrote over 200 songs, and many of those originally written for voice and piano were later orchestrated. Zu Eignung, Devotion, is one such, but the version I've chosen today is with the piano, here accompanied so sensitively by the renowned Strauss interpreter Wolfgang Savalisch. It's a little gem, composed in 1885, set to the words by the poet Hermann von Gilm. I remember seeing the American singer René Fleming perform Strauss's four last songs at the proms many years ago and mentally begging her to sing Zu Eignung as an encore. Never underestimate the power of wishful thinking. It's a good excuse to listen to that beautiful clarity of the voice of Lucia Pop again. The touching, pining lyrics end with the lines Heilig, heilig, ans Herz dir sank, habe dank, joy and bliss shall thy love impart, thanks, sweetheart. There are some who argue that German is an unmusical language, not Lady Bracknell, of all people, who, when commenting on a programming of songs in Oscar Wilde's Importance of Being Earnest, said, French songs I cannot possibly allow, but to German sounds a thoroughly respectable language. A slightly tenuous link on the face of it, but the two men had more in common than you might expect. Strauss's highly charged and dramatic opera Salome was based on a play by Wilde. I hope you enjoy this. It's less than two minutes of gorgeous rapture. Oh, 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 
The sweetness and freshness of Beethoven's Violin Sonata No. 5, so-called The Spring, and in particular the first movement, make it an uplifting tonic at any time of the year. Speed and unity in this piece are what matters most. The movement is marked allegro, quickly, and anything falling short of that loses the skip and freshness of the music. And what sweet, sweet music it is. You might think that unity is a given, but the moment one instrument dominates the other, notes are quashed and they are all worth hearing. It's a dialogue between two instruments, each picking up where the other leaves off, except for when they come together as one. There are, of course, plenty of recordings to choose from, but this one from 1973 with Itzhak Perman on violin and Vladimir Ashkenazi on piano meets the brief so well. It's something of a dream team, both of them on equal terms with the other. Ashkenazi retired not all that long ago, and his Beethoven playing is amongst the very best.
Of all the instruments in the orchestra, the cello is my favourite, perhaps because it's often been observed that it's the one which comes closest to the human voice. It's an essential member of the orchestra not only for underlying accompaniment, but frequently as an introducer of melodies, and as such a perfect candidate for solo pieces and concertos alike. There are countless works to choose from, but I can't resist starting with the cello suites of Johann Sebastian Bach, not least because these works not only explore the full virtuosity of the instrument, but demonstrate how close the cello really is to the human voice. Composed around 1720, they're based on different Baroque dances, and apparently technically very difficult to play. As a result, they only really came to get wider recognition during the last century, when a host of top players added them to their recording output. The prelude, which opens the first suite, is probably the most instantly recognised, but nonetheless beautiful for its familiarity, 
So we'll start with that one, here played by the popular cellist Yo-Yo Ma, who has done as much as anyone to acquaint us with these suites. He takes it at a good pace, but the separate voices are clearly articulated, and he builds it up to a lovely conclusion. The genius of these pieces, just like the violin partitas which we heard in a recent podcast, is that just one instrument seems to be playing several parts at the same time. We'll listen to a couple more in a few minutes. Following that familiar introduction, let's now skip forward to number three and the two bourrées, here played by this country's top cellist, Stephen Isselis. The first one, in the major key, is full of fun, lively, bouncy and jolly, skipping along with this staccato rhythm. The second one, although having quite a similar rhythm, drops into the minor key and is altogether more melancholy. Bach almost eliminates the bounce and replaces it with longer, yearning lines. But the mood is not allowed to prevail, and he soon rounds it off by returning to the original theme. This is joyful music, and all on one instrument, in the hands of one of its finest practitioners. (laughs) ¶¶ 
So having likened the cello to the human voice, let's finish today's podcast with one. And I think it's time we heard the sound of a tenor. Almost everyone, classical music lover or not, will have heard of, if not heard and seen, the three great tenors, Carreras, Domingo and Pavarotti, who first performed together in 1990 on the eve of the FIFA World Cup in Rome. But today I'm going to turn my attention to someone who died 30 years previously, Jussi Björling, often known as the Swedish Caruso. One of Donizetti's most famous and widely performed operas, L'Elysia d'Amore, The Elixir of Love, had its first performance in 1832. Stick with me for just a couple of moments while I give you the briefest of settings of this wonderful aria, because I do think it will help your enjoyment of it. Nemorino, a peasant, is madly in love with Edina, who, being well-off and well-read, is, frankly, also well out of his league. This doesn't dissuade him from trying to no avail to win her over. Indeed, she initially accepts the proposal of somebody else. But the arrival of a quack doctor comes to his aid. Having overheard Adina reading about a magic potion, which Tristan used to capture the heart of Isolde, Nemorino asks the doctor to sell him some. What he downs in one is, in fact, cheap plonk, but it has the effect of giving him Dutch courage for he is confident he would soon be irresistible to Edina. So much so that his flirting with other girls upsets her and she realises she loves him after all. On noticing a tear in her eye, Nemorino sings one of opera's most tender romances, Una Fortiva Lagrima. This is where you can really hear the music coming to the aid of the message. It starts in the minor key, perhaps to suggest his regret at Adina's apparent sadness, but then listen to how Donizetti opens it up into the major key when Nemorino affirms his knowledge that Adina loves him. Mama, see mama, lo vedo. She loves me, I can see it. It's a statement of pure happiness. The melody is repeated, but this time unfolding with even more confidence. It's measured rather than overtly ecstatic, but the message is clear. There are few things in life better than to know we are loved, especially by those we love ourselves, and there are few better examples in music of that feeling being conveyed. 
It's not only heart melting, it just happens to be a fabulous tune as well.
That's it for now. Thank you for listening to Perfect Pitch with Nick Healy Hutchinson. He'll be back again next week with some more treasures for you, so please do join him then. And you can subscribe to this podcast by clicking on the link below.